Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt with me, Kara Cooney, and my co-host during the summer, Amber Myers-Wells. Hey, guys. Um, joining me from her bedroom in beautiful Redondo Beach, California. And I'm in Mar Vista, California. And in Jordan's absence, because she's eating beautiful food, drinking amazing coffee, and eating all kinds of desserts in Torino, Italy, doing a summer field school, we will be discussing an object. And that object will be the Red Shroud Mummy in the Getty Museum at the Getty Villa on the coast in Pacific Palisades. I think they say Malibu, but really we all know it's in Pacific Palisades. And Getty is very close to both of us because I worked at the villa for some years. Amber worked at the villa for some years. Dee, we worked there together and we carpooled. And <laughs> we know the object. I think Amber knows it better than me. So she's going to be the expert. She was an educator in the Villa Museum Galleries and would teach this object on the regular and dealt with all kinds of extraordinary questions from the public. And yeah, so we can just dive on it. Yeah, I have to say Heraclides is one of the favorite stops that I had. I had someone with a background in Egyptology at the Villa. It's all mostly Greece and Rome. And all so Greece and Rome. There was, they've moved it and they've shifted everything around because they have this awful chronological organization now. But when I worked there, it was by subject, right? So you yeah. had goddess and goddesses gallery, you had men, women, athletes. In my opinion, a much more interesting way to organize the collection. But there was it's a more public friendly Egypt stuff. Yeah, it's a public friendly way of organizing. The galleries, Which one? But the chronology or no, subject? no, no subject matter. But I agree. Egypt is still separated out into the same tiny little room. It, Egypt didn't really last get time I was there. Yeah, they had shifted it around because you see, they had to. I think they took off display the bronze, the Getty bronze that is. Uh, under contention right now. Which, between... which one? Which Oh, the one that is politically being... Oh, yeah, I understand. But the Egypt room is still its own little separate cubicle of the space, and the bronze didn't have anything to do with that room. No, right? but I think last time I was there, I think the mummy was in the room that the bronze used to be in. Really? No. Oh, I haven't visited in some time then. Yeah, it had been a while since I had been there too, but they, they're shifting things around. But yeah, when I worked there, there was a small room of if you go to the Getty website, they call it the Romano-Egyptian, which is always a term that kind of grated on the nerves <laughs> a little bit. But I love to go in there because, of course, Heraclides was there. Mm. And I quickly would turn the conversation from Roman stuff, Greece and Rome stuff, to uh, ancient Egyptian afterlife. And let me also double down on this grading on the nerves of Romano Egyptian number one because it makes the room sound like cheese. It does. <laughs> At number like, why am I hungry at the end of this challenge? Want some pecorino Romano? That's what I want. And number two, because it subsumes Egypt to the occupation of the Romans. And that is not what necessarily what this room is about, but also it's this J. Paul Getty way of 
uh, prioritizing and superiorizing, is that a word? It is now, the Romans over the Egyptians because J. Paul Getty did not want to collect anything Egyptian or African. He only wanted to collect things that were Greek and Roman and saw them worthy of his collections. Which is why we um, have portrait mummies in this gallery. Which are right. why you go there. Right. All of the other artifacts that were in there, I don't know if they're still there, are right. relatively minor kinds of things. It's the portraits. That because in that, when I was last there, the room had Heraclides in the center. It has that Coptic sarcophagus mm-hmm. over to the side, Coptic Christian, wooden Christian sarcophagus. iconography. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wooden sarcophagus, not made of stone. And then there are many mummy portraits, Romano. Egyptian, but we would call them Fayum portraits or painted portraits, mummy portraits that have been removed from the mummy. There are what, like six or seven of those in that were in the room on display, maybe? Yeah, about. Most people pay attention, of course, to Heraclides, which is, as we'll discuss, a portrait mummy. And mm-hmm. then Isadora, who is also a red, her portrait was once a part of a red trout mummy, very obviously, but that's a gorgeous portrait and then on the back wall there are maybe six or seven of what one might call of lesser quality or rather who had more of a budget <laughs> commissioning their portraits but yeah that's the way it used to be so. and all of these portraits were once attached to mummies but because it's hella easier to bring a portrait out in your suitcase in 1875 than it is to bring a mummy most of these things as they're displayed are only in portrait form and the mummy is gone and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the red shroud mummy is super rare because there's only two or three such mummies with this red pigment or... It depends on what you're talking about because there are different ways of classifying it and we can get into that for just a second. But yeah, I just want to take up your point about the portrait because yeah, if you are in Egypt in the 19th century and you come across a Roman portrait mummy, you are going to hack away that wooden portrait, which covered the face and very thin piece of wood, very thin piece of wood, generally a lime wood, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Discard the rest. Yeah. But these portraits look like Western portraiture that Mm -hmm. we would think of in later art history, which is why it appealed to J. Paul Getty. And all of our listeners, please Google Fayum, F-A-Y-U-M portraits or Google Egyptian Roman period portraits. And um, we'll put together a Substack post as well on ancient. Oh, I'm so happy. Um, we'll talk all about Heraclides on that post and have some images. There's a great Google arts and culture page for Heraclides with some great images. And so we will put all of that up there and we'll release that at the same time. Uh, and of course, the, the Getty is doing all kinds of academic work on this because the conservator Marie Svoboda has made it her life's work to to collect and spreadsheet and database all of these different mummy portraits in museums around the world, including Egypt, and really make connections between them, which is very cool. Right. She picked out about nine red shroud mummies that are of the same type where they have the shroud wrapped around them. But there are different types within that. So you've got the ones with the very complicated, I think, what do they call it? The rhombic wrapping of the mummy linen. And then there are others where there's like a a raised relief for the iconography. And so the, I think they call it like the Getty Red Trout Mummy Group that Maria Svoboda picked out to study and scan. In particular, back in, I think it was 2005, 2006, 
they got the Getty had this this Heraclides and they decided to scan this it. dude, this guy. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. kind of I'm tiptoeing around it here, but before we we dive in, do you want to talk about the use of the term mummy versus mummified remains? Because I can tell you in this conversation, I'm probably going to fall back into calling uh, into using the word mummy, even though we're talking about mummified remains. As with all things these days, we're reanalyzing and rethinking some of the knee jerk drop kick reactions and terminology that we've used for so long. And lest you roll your eyes too hard, a mummy is a human being. It is a dead human being. And it does objectify that human being into something that can be bought and sold, traded, consumed visually uh, with a museum ticket. And it, it does take that human being out of the equation and make it more about the sideshow experience, the kind of dehumanization and fetishization of ancient people. So I think the term that people are moving towards is embalmed body or mummified remains. Human remains are problematic too, Amber, right? What do you think about human remains? Yeah, when I hear that, I almost, I'm thinking of a more contemporary thing, like a crime. Yeah. The way that law enforcement might describe this. But when it came to teaching about Heraclides in the museum, I often just refer to him as Heraclides. And yeah, bring up the term mummy whenever speaking of the way his body was preserved after his death. But one of the reasons I loved going in there and talking about it, it was a great opportunity to humanize and remind people that all of these objects that they're passing in the museum galleries, like these were a part of actual people's lives. And here is someone who we can look at his mummified remains, this mummy, and we can learn a little bit about what he was thinking about his life after death. You use the word crime, which I think is, it's a hot word, but I think it's appropriate because I think many people listening to this will think, isn't it a crime that you took somebody's body out of his tomb and you put it in a museum as if that's an apolitical and safe space to make him a sideshow of fevered gawking. And how is this appropriate? Isn't that in some ways a crime? And the way that museums deal, particularly with Egyptian human remains, is something that museum curators are feverishly dealing with. Trust us. (laughs) It's something that they're all working on. But it's something that I have to deal with as well in my own work, because I'm working with it. I'm publishing on these things. I'm not working on the bodies. I'm working on the body containers, but there's often bodies in association with it. But it's a really weird thing to go to a place and to buy a human body and to bring it back and put that in a museum and call it art. It is strange. It is strange and weird. And we want to sit with that for a little bit and and understand. In particular, the case of the portrait mummies, We have roughly 100 portrait mummies where you have the portrait still intact with the mummy, but we have about a thousand mummy portraits. So like you were saying, these people were going to Egypt, they were hacking off what they considered to be the valuable part, right? This this portrait that sort of looked like a portrait. The fungible part. In the Western tradition. Yeah. And you use a very light and portable, take it back. And so we have about a thousand of those in museums across the world. 
And what do you think happened to that mummy that they hacked it away from? They used it to start the fire, right? To cook yeah. their dinner in the desert or whatever they're doing. Like they just got rid of it. And it, lest you not believe us, just Google firewood mummies, 19th century, and you will be shocked. Or they would attempt to unwrap it, right? Because they yeah. a lot of these mummies dating to the Roman period in Egypt, once the Romans came in, they had incredibly complicated wrappings. Like I said, this rhombic pattern. And you can spot it from a mile away. And sometimes they would attempt to unwrap it. And what do you do when you unwrap it? You destroy it, right? It's you. It, a lot of times the resin, everything's stuck together. Things get broken. You're pulling. You're just looking for hopefully amulets or something, as you say, fungible or valuable. And so the mummies that actually survived and made it into museums, I don't know, like you say, it's complicated because on the one hand, it's being preserved. Scholars can learn from it and study it as they have with Heraclides, or the public can come and they can also learn about people in the ancient world. But I think the main thing that we want to aim for is just, as you say, some awareness and some respect. Yeah. Or the fact that we are discussing someone who once lived. And just to hit on the subject of the display of human remains at all and whether or not we should do it. I did do a post on this on my Facebook when I actually posted it on my Facebook some years ago. And it attracted a lot of negative attention. And I it's hard in a Facebook space to really say what it is you want to say, which is why we've started the Substack, which is why we've started this podcast. It allows a more nuanced discussion, a less angry and polarizing discussion. And, But I remember trying to say essentially this, that if elite Egyptians, wealthy enough to have embalming, wealthy enough to have body containers and tombs and all of these things, are going to cover themselves with gold, and Heraclides' mummy is, it does have gold foil on it. They're going to cover themselves with beautiful pieces of art. His portrait is there. There's other painted elements on it as well. If they're going to amass and hoard resources like the red lead that's a part of this or other materials and put them on there and then be upset that attention is drawn, then we're, it's a typical elite hypocrisy. And as a social historian, I know that the elite Egyptians were in the same bind that New Kingdom Ramesid Egyptians were in, where they would cover their coffins and burials with all kinds of precious things and then say tomb robbery is bad, though, but tomb robbery is bad. But I know we have social inequality and we took all the stuff and we have all of well, it. And then they themselves go into the valley yes. looking for this valuable stuff to reuse. Yes. So this is this is to me the way to study social inequality. It is the way to study social inequality of the ancient world par excellence by doing it through a burial, because you can see what the ancient people had, what some of them had and what most did not and how it was displayed in the ancient world. When you display something in the ancient world and you're like, look at all the good shit that I have that you don't have. And then we all get morally butthurt that somebody comes in and puts it in a museum. Some rich guy, J. Paul Getty in this case, but it's always some rich dude, puts it in a museum and then claims connection to the riches of the past with the riches of the present. We should not be surprised. All of these things make sense to me. And thus, I see very little moral quandary beyond the fact that Heraclides did not give her his permission to have his body displayed in this time. 
but he certainly did give permission to have his body displayed with along with the rest of every rich person in a cultural contract to have his body displayed in ancient times. How do we work with that? How do we understand that? There are some people out there, Amber, you know them, who are like, don't disturb the dead. What, what do you think of that? Just don't ever disturb the dead. Within the context of ancient Egyptian? Ancient anything. Say you find some ancient Peruvian tomb in a pyramid that's intact and it's some badass queen and the archaeologists open it up and they're like, oh, but it's a dead person, so close it. What do we think of this? I think that you need to be working with a local community. The mm-hmm. people who this it, can claim this as their ancestor, as their culture. So you work with the local community and have a partnership in that way. But with the appeal of archaeology, how could you just walk away from that treasure trove of being able to learn about the past? I just, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing to completely step away and leave it completely undisturbed because then we miss out on on learning what we can from it. And you so, also use the word treasure trove. So the tools we care about. But is, I'm speaking of information. You. I'm not necessarily speaking of the gold and jewels and this sort of thing. As, as an archaeologist, you want an intact burial, right? Yeah. And so if yeah. you're proposing that there's an intact burial there, to walk away from that, you're walking away for, from even more than just simply the objects themselves. You're walking away from context and further information. I mean, I completely agree with you. And yet the public, where does their interests go? But to the gold and the jewels and the things and the, oh, he had this many. That's where we come in. This many. Yeah, that's where we come in. And we talk to the people (laughs) and we create a sub stack with open access posts (laughs) that will and a podcast so that people can listen to and they can hear from the people that, that study it and they can hear how we're debating this amongst ourselves and changing practices. Like I said, it's becoming much more of a trend for the professional archaeologists to be working very closely with local communities and other people that have a cultural claim to these archaeological sites. And context, which culture, what location in the world, very different circumstances in many different places. Like you say, Egypt has, they made their own bed in a way, as you say, as far as the ancient Egyptians wanting to put themselves on display to a certain extent, like you said. And the modern Egyptians being sanguine with putting those Mm -hmm. ancient dead on display, certainly the treasures that surrounded them in their tombs Mm -hmm. being put on display, that we seem to have no moral quandary with these things. But I guess my point was just two points. One, that just because there's a dead body there doesn't mean we walk away. You you were eloquent in your response to that. But then the second thing is that we care so little about the bodies that don't have these Mm -hmm wealthy accoutrements and ignore them and they're published badly too. Usually until recently, they've been published poorly and we need to give more attention to those dead individuals. And I'll just say last thing that, you know, Amber, you and I both work with people who are bioarchaeologists, coffin specialists, mummy specialists, and we're not there treating the dead as a sideshow. Instead, we're there in our own ways as historians and cultural experts trying to resuscitate that ancient life and trying to, in our own way, make, I know it sounds so cheesy. No, we're trying to understand them. Absolutely. Okay, look, Jordan and I have a true crime thing. Yeah, you have this obsession. But I also read a lot of thrillers, mysteries, that sort of thing. And there's uh, an author named Patricia Cornwall, who I'm sure a lot of our listeners will probably be familiar with. Her main character 
Case Carpetta is a medical examiner. One major theme throughout the entire series is Case Carpetta's approach to human remains, to the victims of these crimes. And she comes in with the dead. What can you tell me? In this case, it's what can you tell me so that I can catch the person that did this to you? In the case of an archaeologist or a scholar, it's what can you tell me that can help me better understand what life was like when you were here? And of course, we did that amazing podcast with Rose Campbell, bioarchaeologist who did her PhD at UCLA and is now assistant director of the Luskin Center for History at UCLA. And if when they had were digging through that granary at Edfu with Nadine Miller's team and saw the bodies there and said, oh, no, never mind, there's dead people there, close it up. We would never know from Rose's analysis that we have multiple women stripped and murdered that they have perifractures on their arms trying to defend themselves against this violence. And what Rose is able to tell us is a story that is as old as civilization, and I mean that civilization in scare quotes, and the fact that they were buried in this way only to be found by archaeologists. It's a way of uncovering a crime and helping to bring honor to those victims whatever way we can. And is an argument that you might make too is how are we ever to really give this huge, as you might say, long durée picture of the patriarchy if we put our heads in the sand and from some sort of misguided attempt to be, I don't know, I guess you'd say err on the side of respect or whatever, Mm. leave all of that information out there and we miss out on the big picture then. That's such an important point because the murder of those women is a result of patriarchal systems and embalming bodies is a result of patriarchal systems, that some people get to have bodies that never break down, that live forever, that are still in the J. Paul Getty Villa Museum for us to visually consume. And other bodies, most bodies, 95% of bodies were not involved. And what was that like in a patriarchal society where you knew that there were haves and have-nots and that your body would cease to exist very shortly after your death, that you would become as dust and not be there in the world. And I think that's hugely important. That kind of privilege, it's a materialist privilege that we are drawn to in ancient Egypt because we understand how powerful it is. In our bones, we know what that means to have a materialist privilege in our world today. And we're obsessed with that about ancient Egypt and thus we're obsessed with mummies. Yeah, so I think to sum up, this part of the discussion, it's we are approaching this with open eyes, trying to be respectful about it, but also who is it going to benefit if you walk away from the study of archaeology or history and it's not going to be the have-nots? Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. So let's talk about this guy here at Clytes, whose body is still in the (laughs) museum for many people to come through and see. And I encourage people to go to the Substack post, right? So you can see an actual photograph and you can get an idea because if you're unfamiliar with portrait mummies, what we're about to describe is going to sound weird. It doesn't, it's not like a typical Egyptian coffin right. or a typical yeah. Egyptian mummy. It is Romano <laughs> Egyptian or just Egypt under Roman occupation. And first of all, if it's Egypt under Roman occupation this dude heraclides had a greek name is he greek he did and we can talk a little bit more about that because i would argue that he's identifying more with greek culture which again places him in the elite 
of this. But period, he's embalmed. Right? He's embalmed. He's identifying with Egyptian culture. But what is he? Is there any way for us, Amber, to look at his mummy, knowing his name is Heraclides, and to ask, is he Egyptian or is he Greek or is he Roman or what the hell is this dude? Yeah, no, I have this discussion a lot with visitors because they walk in and they're like, so they want to know. Up, hold they up. Need well, to first know. of all, we recognize this kind of portraiture, this painted wooden portrait that is laying on top of the face of the mummy. And they see this red shroud. It's red because it's been painted in red lead. They see the ancient Egyptian iconography, right, going down the length of the body. And they see the Greek writing. I don't know how many visitors could identify it as Greek immediately, but it doesn't look like hieroglyphs. We'll, it's we'll alphabetic. Right. It's smells of that letter. And I'm saying Heraclides. And also they have been seeing Greek and Roman objects throughout the villa. And now suddenly it's like everything is just crashed together in the mummy so, of Heraclides. Well, let's racially profile this dude, because I can imagine it's exactly the question that you're asked by visitors. Like the first question, was he Egyptian? Wait, he's got a Greek name. Was he Greek? Wait, it's Roman Egyptian. Was he Roman? And this to us, and I would like to look at this through a Western lens because we, you get pulled over by the cops. Are you Latino? They're probably going to say Hispanic and whatever, or white or black. But your ethnic identity is going to be a key to your power in our modern American society. I dare say it's similar in European society. So many would discount that and say, no, we are free of such racial profiling. But we Americans walk into a space and we immediately need to know, wait, what was he? And, you need to put people in boxes. Yeah. But we're doing it. And I'm not saying that there aren't any nefarious reasons to do this. Of course there are. And But I think being racially blind or saying that it doesn't matter is bullshit. I think it matters now. And I think it mattered then. Otherwise, Heraclides, who could very well be some Egyptian dude, wouldn't take on a Greek name. So there's, there is a hierarchy of identity, politics, and power. And we can hit that first. But help me racially identify this dude. <laughs> what do you think you did, Samber? Please, Kara, why don't you just set me yeah. up and shove me off the cliff? Like, with the, uh, I'll help you. I'll question. Let's yeah. hold hands and we'll jump together. I'll start it. But his picture's right there. Is there, I mean, sure, you're pretty much telling me there's no way to know by looking at his face, yes. whether he's Egyptian, Greek, or Roman, because well, there's, there's no way to know without asking him. But let me say this. I would bet that he could speak Greek. Mm -hmm. He's elite. He is clearly participating in an ancient Egyptian cult or a cult, a religious cult of ancient Egyptian origin. That is Which means he practiced. might speak Egyptian, too. Possibly. He could yeah. possibly read it as well. But this is, we're dating his remains to approximately 120 to 140 of the common era. So it's mm -hmm. the Roman period. So possibly he had some literacy with Latin or could speak Latin as well. But from the evidence that we have in front of us, we can very clearly see his connection to Greek culture. And we can certainly see his connection to a religious cult. And I say of ancient Egyptian origin because we all know these cultic practices changed as different cultural influences came in and out. But yeah, looking at him, when I had this discussion with visitors to the museum, I essentially just muddied the waters yeah. and made, the, made it clear to them just how complicated it is, an answer to that question would be. 
And so, so if we went back in time in our trusty time machine and we asked Heraclides himself, what are you Egyptian? Are you Roman or are you Greek? He might have said something like, what do you want me to be being? A little bit. Yeah. How do we end up on Reddit? Where, when are we doing here? Okay, first of all, if we were to ask him that question, did he have Roman citizenship? Yeah. We, we can't necessarily answer that question. As a former soldier. Could be a former soldier. We don't know. But yeah. 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 yeah, we can totally and we can totally get into that a little bit. We can let's talk about his portrait before we get into the iconography. So what do we know from his portrait yeah. um, and looking at his face again? This is a complicated thing. And the point I always would make to visitors is that you just it's not a question you can answer. Yeah. And his skin color is very it's a ruddy complexion, you might say. Tan, tan dude. No. But if you look at Isadora's portrait in the same gallery, she has this beautiful ivory sort of complexion. So there's clearly mm-hmm. a message being communicated there about her exposure to the sun. Like she, she doesn't, a wealthy, does not elite want woman. to be. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So she is, she is not out there laboring, but he's male. And so he mm-hmm. has the darker skin because if you're out and in the sun, this implies activity. But Northern Egyptian, he's a lower Egyptian because... Very, this is Greek. a very good point. This is a very good point as well. We are talking about Fayum, right? Mm-hmm. The region. We have no archaeological context for the red shroud mummy of Heraclides, but based on the evidence of his mummy and what we know about mummies that have actually been excavated from the Fayum, is that a likely find site for Heraclides was either Hawara or El Hibba. And so right up there in the Fayum Oasis region. And so, yeah, that's further north in Egypt. And so also an area where you see a a lot more Greek influence, I would say, a lot more influence coming in from that more northern Mediterranean area. It's not Aswan. It's not Luxor, ancient Thebes even. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So that's a very important point. But also looking at him, you can see he's wearing that crown of laurel. Really mm-hmm. leaves rather, and this is interesting, right? Because he is practicing a religion in an ancient Egyptian cult, I would say, and it's a gold laurel leaf, wreath. a Greek-looking thing. Yeah. So we know that crown was used in Greek culture to crown those who are victorious, right? Mm-hmm. Leads in the Roman period, victorious emperors, generals, this sort of thing. But it's gold. And yeah. this is, we're dealing with ancient Egyptian religion. So what would you tell people about that? The gold, and it's real gold. It's not painted gold. It's gold leaf. And it's put on there quite carefully. The laurel, too, is gold leaf, right, Amber? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the background so, is gold as well. What I would say is that it's a way of visually saying that he's Ma'ahiru. It's a way of saying that he has victoriously... He's true of voice. He is, his heart has been placed on the scales in front of the tribunal. He has professed his negative confession that he has not killed or ordered to be killed or stolen or all of the things you're not supposed to do. And he has victoriously passed that and been given this laurel, which if I were looking at a Ramesid coffin, would not be a laurel. It would be the white garment of the victorious, though they don't use this word, but of the pure of the true, those who are following Ma'at and are filled with Ma'at, with that truth. And so it's this symbol of, of purity that it's showing that he's reached that next stage of the afterlife without any problems. And but he's what do the, you, he's the victorious, what do you think? He's the victorious 
deceased. Yeah. He, he, he has made it into the afterlife victorious. He's passed through that dangerous liminal space and he is, he's the victor. So when you die in the ancient Egyptian understanding, you're going into a kind of hell realm that you must traverse and where you will be interrogated, where you have to answer certain questions and you have to make it through that. And if you make it through that, then you can become what the ancient Egyptians called an ash. And it's A-K-H when it's spelled in Western texts. It means that you are an effective one. You become like the dead who can act on behalf of the living. You are an effective ancestor. And so I think that's what this laurel is meant to connote. And the little pieces of gold that go all around his face. Right. It's kind of oh, like the little squares, him. you mean? The little squares yeah. that are painted, put on yeah. with gold foil along the edge of the shroud. And there's gold behind his face. It's like his whole face is glowing. And then the other thing we've forgotten, and Egyptologists are probably screaming at their car radios, is that we're, <laughs> we've forgotten that the Egyptians thought that the divinities had the flesh of gold, skin and flesh. Right. So we can talk more about that when we get into the iconography painted on the shroud. But I was also going to point out as well, based on the analysis of the portrait itself, we know that it was painted and then the gold added last. And you can say, okay, this is a practical thing, right? Just if you're painting a portrait on wood, the gold foil, it makes sense for it to be added last. But there's also this little complication of we actually have some evidence to suggest that these portraits were painted prior to death. Mm -hmm. And that they may have been on display or hung in the house in some way, or that these portrait mummies were actually maybe not entoured right away when the person passed, but rather were maybe in some location away from the home or on display in the home. So you can have this visage of your loved one, right? Still there. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wonder what if when they, you initially commission your portrait, it doesn't have the gold leaf. It's mm -hmm. hung up in your home where you put it wherever it goes before it goes with your mummy. And then you die and then they put the gold on. Love that. That's great. Have you read that anywhere? Is a possible understanding of how the gold I, was added? There, there is a publication on that the Getty did with Lorelai Corcoran and Maurice Svoboda. They did discuss the fact that this gold foil was added last. But I don't know that they really went so far as to speculate that much because we will be doing a lot of speculation with Heraclides because we don't have any written records to tell us exactly what these cultic practices were. What, what are studies of antiquity, but studies for incomplete information and hypothesizing? And that's just what we do. But I love this idea that you could have a portrait in your house and you'd be like, look at he looks great. This is so nice. But you don't divinize it. You don't gild it until it's appropriate to do. And when it's gilded, that means that person is passed on. The word passed is exactly what we're going for. You've passed to a place that you want to be. You're not in the liminal space. You have moved on to some other location space that is good for you. And the gilding marks that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Another thing about the portrait of Heraclides is if you are looking closely, as I've had many opportunity to do, but also the Getty conservators, right? They've gotten in there and really taken a look. There's no clothing that you could see around the clavicle area of mm -hmm. Heraclides. And if you look at the portrait of Isidora, you can clearly see her clothing, right? So, yeah. so it was an option to include that, but we don't see that with him. And so then that has also led to some interesting discussion about, okay, so 
We don't see any clothing here. Does this imply that he's trying to have himself presented as an athlete? Uh, he's a young man, probably. Analysis of the skeleton suggests he died somewhere in between 20 and 30, perhaps. And life expectancy at this time was probably like if you made it past 40, you were doing really well. Uh, um, so we don't know exactly how he passed, but but some people have looked at that lack of clothing and they said, ah, this follows the classical tradition of the naked athlete. That's how they portrayed their athletes, their heroes, this sort of thing. And so it's been suggested. Perhaps. I'm fine with that. And wearing the laurel leaf, it works. Yes, but all of the deceased were shown with that. With the laurel leaf? Oh, okay. With the red okay, shroud mummy. Let me, let me take a quick look here at the Getty Red Shroud Mummy group. Yeah, they all have laurel leaves. Do they all uh, have, crown, have clothing? The, yeah, Heraclides really is the only one that looks naked. Then maybe the other thing I could think of would be that there could be a bit of slight archaism happening here because how did they depict the man in the fifth dynasty how did they depict the man in the 12th dynasty if he's dead in a tomb depiction he's going to be shown with a naked chest wearing a kilt on his lower body and so showing it with a naked chest does give that kind of archaizing ancient egyptian look of an old kingdom or middle kingdom guy perhaps a practical explanation is maybe it's just simply covered by the shroud yeah. but some of these other mummies it, the clothing comes up high enough that it looks like they could have had that shown if they wanted to and so this is why this is a, a topic of discussion is yeah that they there are there's room to maybe show even just a little bit of clothing and some of these other red shroud mummies it's just a little sliver of clothing it's not a lot yeah. just a little yeah. bit so, I don't know. It's an interesting suggestion. But the portrait itself is beautiful. And if you really look at the details, you, there are questions to ask. Yeah. The face of the guy, to me, he looks youthful. He's, if I'm going to racially profile, I'm going to say more white European facing than Southern Egyptian facing. But these are dangerous waters in which we are treading, particularly given... These are dangerous waters. We'll leave it there. But uh, so his skin color is tan white dude. And then he's got like his little mustache. He's got a little Guido mustache and then a little like, what is it called when it's just that little upper chin hair? Not the the soul patch. Soul patch. He's got a soul patch going on. Thank you. His eyebrows are thick, but not super thick. He looks rather manscaped and rather groomed. Like he, he took care and attention to his facial hair to make it have a particular shape which is some of these people have very bushy eyebrows and more unkempt and unruly facial hair. This guy is not one of those. And you bring up an interesting question as well, because a lot of the visitors who came in and saw Heraclides, one of the questions that they would have is, oh, was this portrait painted at the time of death? As in, is this the age that he died at? Or is it a case of idealizing him? Was he like an old man and they made him look youthful in the portrait and based on the evidence that we have of portrait mummies these portraits were painted around the time of death yeah which makes it really hard to say that they're displayed in the home maybe for very long maybe they're displayed while the body is being prepared that would make more sense maybe so often you had another portrait made these are wealthy people right yeah maybe you had one when you're a child and then okay you're getting older now so let's have another one commissioned 
it's hard to or say. Or if embalming, according to Herodotus, takes that the customary number of days, 70 if you're super rich and less if you're not. But that's a time of mourning where everyone's going to come to your house where such display is super important. So then you've got the mummy portrait there while everyone's gathering. Maybe the body is the body's going to be mummified, right? It's going to be with the priests as they're mummified. I can see that. And I also can understand how when you look at mummy portraits, you see a wide range of age from young children to the very old with gray hair and all and lots of some, but I would I'd argue that that gray hair, like that this isn't this these are people that are not that old by our standards. I wouldn't say they're sixties or seventies or anything, but the the they're old by that period, time period standards for sure. But this is to say that in the instances where the mummy skeleton has been able to be analyzed and you have the portrait together, mummy and portrait together, the age, the approximate age of the skeleton matches up with the age, the approximate age you might guess looking at the portrait and and yeah it's completely up in the air as to precisely when the portrait was painted because we have this question was it displayed in a, mm-hmm. in a daily life context at all or was mm-hmm. this simply something commissioned and used for funerary purposes at death i'll say that daily life and afterlife or tomb display becomes muddled, becomes confused because the dead, not today in our world, but the dead in the ancient world would die at home. They would die in a domestic space surrounded by family who are caring for them. And I think it would be a good thing to return to that kind of thing. And I think many hospice workers would agree. And people who choose hospice care for end of life, and we need to talk more about end of life. Anywho, this When my grandmother's mother died when she was nine, she told me the story that she came home from school one day and everything in the house was draped in black, that they had put black over the windows, they had put black over the table. And her dead mother was laying on the dining room table covered in black. And so the home had become a mausoleum. The home had become like the liminal tomb space where everyone gathered and then everyone came. So you have you have people coming and drinking and eating and talking and gathering and collecting with one another and also witnessing this moment of transition. You do that for a couple of days and then right. you put the body where it needs to be. In, in Egypt, in a tomb, in a chamber, in other places, you might burn the body. In other places, you bury the body. But the home is this, it's like a temporary tomb. And I would love to think of a portrait like this having a part in that kind of display. And so two points come to mind to me. One, in an era without photographs, these yeah. portraits, once somebody passed away, must have given some comfort, right? To yeah. still have the likeness of your loved one yeah. visible and there. Two, within ancient Egyptian religion, we know in earlier periods, you have this thing called a cost statue, right? Mm-hmm. And within the, in Roman Egypt, you know, were these portraits in some way seen along those lines, right? Yeah. As a likeness of the deceased, something that would bring the deceased here. Mm-hmm. I think coffins and mummy coverings had very much become the cost statue by this, mm-hmm. by this time period. And then three, Amber, bring the embalming part into it. And then you have a liminal home mausoleum display space that lasts longer than the three days of a wake if the body is going to be interred right away. If they take the body and they start the embalming process, that means that home could potentially be open and visitable by those who are paying their respects for a month 
or, well, what or about a, a, a home altar, right? You have yeah. your ancestor there to appeal to. They are in the afterlife, right? Yeah. Uh, you. What about that? Yeah. We have letters to the dead in earlier periods. In this period, was it you had your loved one there and you can just appeal right to their face? Here they are. I'm sorry. Portrait mummy. As they're being mummified, you're talking to them, you're intercessing, you're discussing, you're they're still you're helping them over to the other side. Right, but I'm touching on the issue, this question that has been debated as to whether or not these portrait mummies were kept in the home for any period of time once the mummification was complete, once it was all said and done, because they have that foot case there. You can stand them up. Okay. I'm going to push hard against that. So I'm, and okay, I don't know okay. which scholars. It's a debate. It's a debate. I, I don't know which scholars I'm pushing against. There's a way to stand up the 26th dynasty mummy case. You can have to for the opening of the mouth. Exactly. And they would have, I'm certain, done the same thing in priestly settings with this mummy here. And so you need it to be able to be upright. He's got to become Osiris. He's got to rise from the dead. They didn't get that Jesus rising the dead from nowhere. They got it from Egypt. He's got to come from the prone position and raise up. So standing up mummies is normal. It goes, you can see that represented going back to the Middle Kingdom. You can stand up a mummy. And you know what? People just don't like to keep the dead body around. And you and I both know that when you open up a case that has a mummy in it, it smells. It smells, even if it's mummified. And so I just don't, I can't settle with this idea i don't necessarily disagree with you but i do still question this appeal of having this portrait of the dead now maybe they had a couple of different portraits yes maybe they made two of them and they kept it however the ancient egyptian idea of having a head floating around without a body is a problem this is not the way things change over time yeah and we've got outside cultural influences maybe this isn't such a problem in this period maybe and there are busts and i do i understand this but i would go with the ancestor bust over that that there must have been something like that in the home but i just have a problem with people keeping the dead body around for no like i said i don't necessarily disagree with you i just think that there's definitely you can always complicate things with this like there's really we don't have archaeological evidence and so again we have educated speculation here. But yeah, so we have the portrait painted on wood and then we have this red trout. Now you're talking about mummies and smelly and they're not that pleasant, which is true, even centuries or millennia later. But the shroud is painted in red lead. Now, yes. <laughs> so let's talk about this red lead, but let me remind you because I'm sure that you've read this about Heraclides before. So this red lead, is something that was imported into Egypt. So they're not painting the shroud red with cinnabar or some other red pigment that is a little bit cheaper, a little bit more readily available. Cinnabar, they don't have cinnabar. Egyptians, well, do they? I'm just giving you an example of a red yeah, pigment yeah. that you don't have to. Red find. ochre. No, they would have used or a ochre, red ochre. ochre. Or realgar. They would have used a realgar. That would have been really right. pricey and very orange. But right. But the point is they were cheaper, yeah. more readily available options like geographically speaking, right? This red lead that was used for the mummy of Heraclides has been analyzed and they know that it came from Spain. Mm -hmm. In particular, it is a byproduct of mining silver. And so it was a a human manufactured substance, right? We know that it's incredibly toxic and therefore could have been used in part for 
its ability to help preserve the body, right? Because you have yeah. you cover it in this toxic substance, right? That helps keep out bacteria and other things that can help to deteriorate the body. But also it is common, dear listeners, yeah. to find a mummy that is riddled with insect pathways mm-hmm. <laughs> to see how the insects have eaten at a mummy. And so covering it with something toxic that could potentially be an insecticide or antibacterial, antifungal, it mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. And it in does. the Roman period, they were aware of its toxic properties. And but also, so there's the cachet of this red lead. It is, like you said, it's human manufactured. It's expensive. You're bringing it into Egypt to use it for this purposes and probably many others. It was actually used medicinally in some cases, but some Roman authors are like, look, this stuff is toxic, so use with care or use with function. Yeah. But it's also red. Yeah. And so you're painting this entire mummy red. And what do we know about the color red in ancient Egyptian religion? If I looked at statuary and I saw this thing was made of red granite, I would assume that there was a solar purpose to this piece. And so and when I go into a tomb chapel and I see a painting and I say I see a sun disk, and it would be painted a deep red. And so that's the color. It's very much that deep red is the color of the setting sun. Mm-hmm. The sun that is of Atum, that is setting in the West, ready to move into that dangerous hell-like realm of the underworld to... to very appropriate for a mummy. Yeah, it is. And then move through the 12 hours of night and then come out victorious and deep red again as the newborn sun on the other side. So it can be death. It can be birth. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I'm getting at. There's absolutely the solar aspect, but there is also red being associated with birth. Yeah. Oh, Uh, I see. Because we know the sun is born from newt each morning. She's swallowing it and then she's giving birth to the sun each day. And so Here's the thing about Heraclides and the iconography that we're about to get into is that you can read it every which way, right? Yeah. It is meant to be narratively flexible. Mm-hmm. Like you are meant to be able to read into it what you want, what you need, mm-hmm. right? And so for Heraclides, the fact that it's like this Rubik's Cube of flexibility, right? You just flip it around and get the combination that you want or need at the time. Is something that I would always talk to visitors about is like, this is meant to be his tool, his vessel to get him through that liminal space between life and the afterlife. And it needs to be like a multi-tool, right? Where he can just pull out what he needs based on whatever circumstances he might encounter in this scary space, right? That he has to pass through to get to the afterlife. And again, we're really creeping out on the limb here. But I don't necessarily think that we're being crazy. Oh, and I would put it this way. So these things serve the dead to help get them to the next life, but the dead don't bury themselves. These things serve the living arguably much more than the dead, whatever we tell ourselves. They're for the living to feel like they've done the right thing vis-a-vis the dead and to put themselves into the right headspace and know that they've done everything they can to make the dead live again in the next world, but also to show everyone how much wealth they have, how much education they have, how important their family is. This moment of death is manipulated and used to manufacture social power. Lest you think that I am denigrating funeral preparations, I'm not. I'm just saying that every time we have a rite of passage, We use it, we human beings, to make a social power statement as well, whether it's the birth 
or a wedding or a funeral or a marriage. Oh, I said wedding. These things are used by all no, of us absolutely. to put There's, our best foot forward. As yeah. you love to say, coffins are social documents, right? Mm-hmm. And any kind of funerary material is really a social document. But this isn't to take away from the fact or the idea that Heraclides probably really wanted these tools, right? He really yeah. believed that he would need this mummy, he would need this portrait, he would need the iconography on the, on his shroud to get him into the afterlife. And so we don't want to take away from that idea, but we also want to acknowledge that, as you say, the living were certainly using these things to their social benefit for social display and so on. Yeah. But yeah. So we've talked about the red lead a little bit. So let's get into the iconography. Oh, and it's looking. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, the iconography is super important. But like the red lead, I'm sure people would have seen it and they're like, oh my God, they use that red lead. Do you know how expensive that is? It probably had a different, like you said, a different tone, a different color than some of the other red pigments available to them. And what they did was they mixed it up with beeswax. And so you get this encaustic as it is called paint. And you can actually see the brush strokes on the mm-hmm. of Heraclides. You can see little hairs from the brush mm-hmm. places that get lost or stuck in the paint. And it is incredible if you really truly look closely at the shroud, what you can see. It is I and never mix it with a looking at it. With a varnish kind of substance too. So it, it, is for, it varnish for, in that for red this? I, I don't know. I did my review recently. And so I know for sure, I know for sure red lead and beeswax, but I don't know more precisely than that. If If there's any any tree resins of varnish. Now, there there were certainly resins used, I think, within the shroud and the wrappings itself because they do have a cross section of the linen. And so they Mm. do know that there there were resins, which can also have antimicrobial properties as well. So they put in a bandage and then paint it with the Mm -hmm, antimicrobial mm -hmm. varnish and then another layer of linen. Exactly. Yeah. So on the final shroud that we can see, I don't know that they had resin there, but certainly beeswax and the red lead were used, that was used to create the red pigment. But yeah, so do you have that line drawing of the iconography or do, the, do. an image in front of you so that we can yeah, I got it. look and I got see? Because even in person, I admit you have to really look a little closely because obviously this is a, a couple of thousand years old. To see the details of it, you have to know what you're looking for. And as we were saying, I just want to hit sort of the major points of the iconography and maybe talk about the way, the different ways that it can be read. Quote, unquote, scare quotes, right? Yeah. Uh, so if we start at the top on his shoulders, do you see the the wedge eyes? Yeah. yeah. And they're a little different from right to left, which is intriguing. I don't know if there's anything that can be said there. Or it's just the way the artisan's drawing them. But yeah, ujat meaning wholeness health in a way you know what i've always thought too because they do use it in a funerary context so the story of the ujat eye is that it's the eye of horus and seth injures it takes it away from horus right but it's restored right and so i've always yes it signifies wholeness which obviously this has obvious advantages if you're being reborn into the afterlife but i've always also thought of it as a restoration of wholeness Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. In the context Always. of being reborn, right? Because After it, it harm. fits in with the mythology or the story that we know, right? Yeah. And I, so we have those Ujet eyes there. And then we have the falcons. Wait, the fact that they're on the shoulders is super interesting because on a coffin, they would be near the shoulders, but they would be on the sides of a coffin. And that's because the deceased in the old kingdom and middle kingdom was placed on their side. 
and they would use those eyes to look out the side. Oh, yeah, that's and right. Then, that's right. Yeah. And then when coffins... And they were placed together, like eyes on a face, right? Austin, yes. And then yeah. when they would be... When coffins became anthropoid, those Ujjat eyes, instead of being placed on the side box, were like put on the shoulders in a sense, but still on the sides of the box of the coffin. And so here on the mummy, we have them move here. So it's a remnant of what was used for the deceased to look out of the box, but it's right. retained even on a mummy, which is not a box, right. but a body. Well, and this is interesting, too, because here is a, probably a great illustration of they're using this symbol. Do they know? why they're using it or exactly what the origins were, like how much did they know about that? Yeah. Possibly quite a lot. Yeah. Or maybe it's one of those traditions where, okay, we know that we do this and it goes here. Yeah. So it's a question, I think. Or maybe some priests in the cult, if they're highly educated or whatnot, they might know more than yeah. those who aren't. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point. But I doubt they would have looked at it the way I do and seen like the remnants no, of yeah. the Middle Kingdom box coffin becoming the New Kingdom antiquate coffin and then retention of the eye as this is happening. But it's fine. You're right. It's <laughs> like a different so, view. But then, yeah. So on the next level, I guess we would, I don't know, do we call it? On his chest. Yeah, right? on his yeah, chest. Yeah, on his chest. On his chest. We have the two falcons with the bowling pin crown, right? The white crown. Yeah, yeah. And so this could be read, I would suggest, a couple of different ways, right? How Sokar Osiris could work, because Sokar would be the hawk, and then having the white crown, it's possible. Horus is the easiest Horus is, to, Horus to is the easiest, and with the white crown. The crown in between might suggest more of a Tassokar Osiris with the double plumes on the... On, on the, the cow's horns. Resting on yeah. the cow's horns, yeah. And yeah. that type of crown was actually an object of veneration, right? Like they would actually mm -hmm. worship the crown yeah, as well. So yeah, definitely crowns, crowns are divinities in their own right. Yeah. The solar aspects happening here. And the reason, too, that we're throwing out names here is, unlike in other contexts, we don't have hieroglyphs or anything that labels. There's no captions. Yeah, no exactly. But that's part pictures. of the point as I keep reiterating, is you're supposed to be able to imbue this image with whatever is required or needed, whether it's on and, the part of Heraclides or the viewer. And if it's Horus, then it would be the far-seen one. It would be kingship and power. It would be some sort of worldly strength. It would also be an association with a youth because he's a young man. And we have Horus here because he's a young man, or maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's possible. Yeah. I mean, it depends. There are, just looking quickly at some of the other Red Shroud mummies in the Getty Red Shroud mummy group, this upper register, it, it seems that you get these falcons or you get wings, bird wings yeah. as well. I don't know exactly how they would decide which prescription you got as far as your iconography. There's, no, the bird wings are important. And I remember reading Rene Van Valsen's book, The Coffin of Jedtai Ufank, and there he said, oh, these are falcon wings, so it's associated with bird as opposed to the vulture wings or other wings that are associated with the enveloping goddess who's surrounding you. So it's, it's yeah, interesting. Most of the red shred mummies have just the falcons. There's one that has uh, the wings, and that is the one in Cambridge, the Fitzwilliam Museum. So yeah. interesting. And then on the next register, we have a goddess with two, the two feathers and of Mott in her hand. And this is like mid-body, like where the arms would be crossed, mm -hmm, something mm -hmm. like that. So like lower chest, 
stomach belly region. And she's holding the feather of truth in each hand. She's got the cow's horns with the sun disc between them. And she's standing on the sign for gold, I guess. That's what that is. So yeah, it's got, uh, yeah. Or is it, it's a bit, it's a neb with a little stand. So it's a little confusing. It's, it's like the hieroglyph is not exactly right. And what are our candidates for this goddess? We've got Newt would be the obvious one. Isis, maybe even half. Or, or just Ma'at. But yeah, Newt is probably the most likely candidate. And goddesses all look alike. But you need their, you can't just use iconography because they're all going to be wearing the cow's well, horn. Well, and especially at this time period, Isis was particularly popular yep. across the ancient Mediterranean. Yep. And so she definitely absorbed some of the iconography of the other goddesses. But I think, again, part of the point is a bit of syncretism. Right. You've got the aspects of Newt, you've got aspects of Isis, you've got aspects of Hathor. Whatever you need, this image can be. Right. I would also like to point out that this is the lower belly on into the genital region. And to have the goddess here, it also makes sense that there could be, and this is where my brain goes. I'm so sorry. Go to the sex angle. I know. But to put the goddess on the erotic zones, it works on coffins too. You can see that Newt is placed there where the genitalia would be. And it, it works well. And we should talk about it more. We will, because we're going to get into some creative potentiality here, Kara, because I've okay, been good. waiting okay, the whole good. discussion to do this. So below <laughs> the goddess, yes, we have the ibis, right? Okay. With sun disc on its head. Right. We know that the ibis is a symbol of the god Thoth, yeah. or an aspect of the god Thoth, but right. the baboon as well. I, the ibis is just one of the animal forms that this god could take. And so this leads to a lot of other speculation, but not just because of the image. And we have this right over the, again, something of the abdominal region in the mummy is getting a little bit lower, but. So, yeah, it's a little low, lower than I would like for genitalia, but after just looking at the body and trying to. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's over the genitalia, not saying it's over the genitalia. What is approximately in that area? Wrapped in with the mummy oh, of Heraclides yes, of is of the course. mummified ibis bird. Is it on his stomach or it's on his belly or kind of like stomach, belly, like just really low there. But his, So they put it on his mail package is what you're saying. I don't know that we know that. I know that it's roughly in that area of the ibis on the mummy itself. Let's Google an image of Heraclides the mummy. There's got to be one that shows well, where it is. And it so infected. we know that it's there because they did the CT scan. And right. So Heraclides was actually the first mummy from ancient Egypt that we know about that had an animal mummy wrapped in with the human mummy. Right. Now, there was the case of Ma'at Kare, who had the little baboon mummy placed outside of her. So right. we know of that circumstance. And we know that animal mummy cults were very popular in the late period in Egypt. But this, to have this ibis bird, right, actually wrapped in with the mummy of Heraclides is fascinating. Okay, so I'm looking at some of the scans, and it seems like it's underneath the hands, the ibis bird. It's like his folded hands, and then the mummy is underneath that, which would put it in the correct zone for a nice... It's in the zone. It's in the erogenous zone of masculinity and identity. 
it's in the zone and I understand where your thoughts are going, but mine are going to a different place. But let's what let's hey, I'm this all for the again. sex. I'm all for the okay. sex, but but let's at this point very carefully, lest we be misunderstood. Somebody went to the Ibis Thoth temple and they said, We would like to order a mummified Thoth. Thank you very much. And they ordered it and they killed the Ibis and they mummified it and they wrapped it and they delivered it. And they took this ibis bird. And when Heraclides died, and maybe they ordered it when Heraclides died, because it's going to take longer to mummify a human being than it is a, an ibis bird. So they probably did all of this simultaneously. But they're like, we're going to do the extra deluxe mummification special. And they put the bird in with the human body and wrapped it all up together so that he's holding in his hands, in his arms, out in front of him, this, the god thoth in bodily form. Yes. Himself. And so what am I thinking about? Especially because the cult of Thoth we know, again, also popular during this period. But I'm thinking of, as I was saying before, this mummy as Heraclides' vessel of rebirth. Yeah. And yeah. he's interested in increasing the creative potentiality of his mummy. And so to plant within it, perhaps in a way like Thoth in the egg, right? Yeah. The Hermopolitan creation account yeah that this mummy might have just supercharged the creative potentiality of his mummy to help guarantee that successful rebirth like he has a the creator god as he may have seen it right with yeah. him in his journey into the afterlife and yeah i just want to go no i just one I step it. further one step yeah further. go ahead go ahead because we know okay this is like a supercharged burst, hopefully, for the creative potentiality. But what does that do to his status once he is reborn? Is he divinized? Is he, does that give extra oomph to his ach, to his, the, his form as the true voice? These are the crazy speculative thoughts that I had a lot of time to think about in those galleries all those years. But it's really wonderful because to include a mummy like that, you mentioned the Hermopolitan creation mythology, which for some people is going to sound like a really deep cut. And they're going to be like, wait, what? What are you talking it's about? It's the deepest of cuts, folks. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. You shouldn't know that off the top of your head. <laughs> no, the Heliopolitan is the deepest of cuts in terms of its age. But th this is, it's a creation mythology that we only have evidence for relatively late, though there's bits of evidence that suggests. Kingdom origin. It, Almost certain. So this is a deep cut of afterlife mythology. And you get this going back. It's mentioned in the pyramid texts, right? And we have a lot of coffin texts about Thoth being a creator god. And essentially you have the Ogdoad, which is the four pairs, male-female pairs of pre-creation, which include, oh shit, darkness, infinity, primeval matter, and hiddenness, whatever those things are, that come together. Is that right? They're, yeah, okay. And then they make an egg. And then from the egg, Thoth is born. And then Thoth creates the world. And it's or, this. Or in another yeah. version, an ibis bird lays an egg, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're, 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 different, they're different versions of this. Right. Um, and the listeners, dear listeners, did an egg laying gesticulation, which was awesome. It was awesome. A whole bodily egg laying pantomime. I, I was there for it. I saw it. And you, nobody else gets to see it. But uh, yeah, all of this. Yeah. And then Thoth lays the egg. And then from the egg, the sun right. is born. And it's all. 
And he's holding a mirror, little Thoth, our little Thoth on Heraclitus' mummy is his little non-existent arms are holding a mirror that is... Is it a mirror associated. or a fan? I think it's a mirror, a mirror on a staff. It is very round. Regardless, mm. it's a solar, it's the creation it's a of solar life. Yeah. Yeah. It's a solar thing. And the mirror is a solar thing. And he has the sun disk on his head. Sure, they're trying to evoke the solar aspect there. But yeah, right. so the mummified ibis within the mummy of Heraclides, like you said, fascinating detail. Heraclides was the first guy that we knew about. Once they found the ibis in Heraclides, the conservators at the Getty, like Maurice Laboda, were like putting out the APB. Hey, y'all, scan your red shroud mummies. <laughs> See what we find. And they did find ibises too. Ibis mummies. So crazy. In the red shroud mummy in Basel, Switzerland. Yeah. In the museum there. Heraclides isn't alone. He's just the first one that we know about. And he only has one. Um, the other guy has two. So maybe he was worried. I don't know. Super but, deluxe. Super yeah, exactly. deluxe mummification. He wanted to, he wanted to supersize that, yeah. uh, that, that selection there. Yeah, you, get, like, you can't see the mummy. And so when you're displaying this body... And you're like, you guys, we just want you to know that we went with super deluxe embalming and there's, we did the animal mummy and it's in there and it's, or maybe people would just have known the code that by seeing the thought depicted there in that exact spot, they know that there's a, a that there's an ibis mummy in there and that or, he's or going to have the help of the God. Did, or was it something that they kept to themselves? I don't believe it's anything that's super because secret. Because you can't, because you can't see it though. Yes, you know, like, but yeah, people will the talk about there. it. It's okay. elitism. Okay. It's keeping its restriction and exclusivity that some people got to see it when I guarantee you that some people were there and the family would have been there to make sure they actually put in the goddamn ibis because they want to make sure that the priests are putting in what they say they're going to put in. So there would have been a moment, some sort of a consecration moment when they're wrapping those last bits and they put the ibis in, the family's watching, they wrap, they put the varnish on, they wrap, they put more varnish on. This would have been a part of a different display, a more exclusive display for a limited set of family. And then that would have been talked about after in the larger okay. funeral. All right. This is All what right. I think. This is what right. I think. No, no, no. I, I Can I prove you, it? You certainly have a point. You certainly have a point. I, yeah. I agree. I don't believe in anybody buying anything extra without showing it in some way, shape or form. It's true. It's like, not what people do. Yeah, they took the Reagan approach, trust but verify. <laughs> so right below that on the kneecaps. Taking them out at the knees is Osiris. <laughs> we got Osiris on the knees. I don't know why he's there. Do you know why he's there? Kara, he's the god of the dead. Yes, but on the <laughs> knees. I'm just being Oh, very you mean literal. the location on the bottom? Yes. <laughs> okay, Osiris is associated with knees, not really. No, it's been a long week. Awesome. And so, he's got snakes on either side of him, snakes of protection. So I think this with the snakes on either side of him with Osiris there in the middle is oh, our here, six of the Amduat. What do you think? Uh, possibly. But here I'm going to throw like the, all of this for a bit of a loop, too, because we have been reading, quote unquote, reading this iconography from the top down. Right. Oh, yes. It's also been suggested that you could potentially read it from the bottom up and that the meaning them might have changed depending on how you do that in one reading then osiris then as you say you don't get to him until the knees right he's relatively late but if you read it from the bottom up he's second right okay. right below the solar falcon that you have there with the feathers and the sun disc so like uh, a bobbird he's like a bobbird but with the 
falcon head rather than the human head, but it's the same way of drawing a bobber in a 21st dynasty. But again, definitely bringing up the solar. Osiris is on either side of him. He has two snakes going down Mm -hmm. the length of his body with two sun discs, so creating a protective space for Osiris there. Um, yep. Who is there for sure? Because the de- the deceased has to identify with Osiris, right? To be yep. reborn, they must die and they must be reborn, as Osiris was after Seth murdered him, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's he's. We know that he's there to help with a rebirth, <laughs> and he's got a fancy cape. He's got a superhero cape. Yeah, on. I don't know what that is. That a garment? Is that? What yeah, I think it's like it? a piece of textile, like one of That's those interesting. things that comes out. Yeah, uh, honestly, those... yeah, I have no idea exactly what that is supposed to be but i like the idea of it being a garment of some sort he's mm-hmm. got the atef mm-hmm. crown on there right yeah with an extra yeah. is it always shown with a little sun disc on the crown sometimes it's more to the front it's they put it on the side there because they want you to uh, see it so maybe this is an artistic convention maybe it's actually mm-hmm. meant to be on the front and it because yeah ancient egyptian artistic canons actually it appears to us that it's on the side of the crown but it's i would agree with that on the front on the front there yeah yeah and then for this falcon down at the bottom too what about tasso caro cyrus for this putting it all together you could see a tasso caro cyrus as well the falcon's a solar falcon with the ma'at feathers of truth that the wings outstretched as if he's flying it's it gives mobility to the deceased to have the wings visible that he's Ooh, able he's to by come and go. He's by the feet. By the, oh, that's nice. So he's the one who comes forth by day. In mm-hmm. a way, you can read it that but way. But activating the feet. feet. Activating yeah. the feet. Yeah. One who comes forth by day. Because, of course, how do you write to, to go forth or to come? You use the feet hieroglyph, and that's the yeah. word. So yeah. it's you can read it that literally. That's cool. just Some people are listening to this. They're like, they're just making this shit up as they go. <laughs> <laughs> But you can. You can. You absolutely can. can. This is our point, people. (laughs) I know. And the fact that his feet are so carefully depicted, and yet he has no hands carefully depicted, upsets me. I'm like, but where are his hands? And I guess the two feathers of the ma'at up above serves as hands, or maybe the two next to her serve as hands, or the two snakes can serve as hands. I don't know. I don't know. But because his feet are very carefully drawn so that he can walk, so that he can move. Yes. Yes, yeah, so he could be activated again. And what do you notice about the toes in the color photograph? What, what color you... are the toes? Green. The feet are <laughs> green, but the tips of the toes are gold. Oh, I couldn't see that. I can't see it in the picture that I have. Okay, yeah. So like they I said, it's, it's the difficult. Feet. The, those little, from earlier periods, the gold sort of toe caps Yeah, they they have. Yeah, Tutankhamun had a little cap mm-hmm. on each toe. On Except there are just simply flat ones, too, that you can just place right. on top of the toenail. So that's interesting. Again, it's interesting the that they're divination. green. I don't like this green foot. Like the green feet. Yeah. <laughs> Dead feet. Not I don't right. think that's what they meant. I think they're covered with a textile of some sort. That could be his cloak or his garment that's peeking out. Or again, green. Rebirth. Osiris is something Yeah, it's true. Green. It's true. And then if it's a green cloak, that would be fine. That would work for me. And then so, his name there at the very bottom. Exactly. Okay. And yeah. what about his name? We know it's in Greek, right? And it reads yeah. Heraclides, son of Tharmu, and it's cut off, right? Looking at the popularity of names in the ancient world, we think that this is the name of his mother, Thermuthis, or there's another form of it, Thermutherion, something like this, because mm-hmm. that was a popular female name. And the male okay. version that begins Thermu was not popular at all. So they're suggesting that this is 
his matrilineal line, son of, and then they name his mother Thermuthis. Oh, but what but, about his name? Tell me but, about his name. If you look at the way the Greek is written, it's written so that if you're standing like behind Heraclides' head and say, imagine him looking down at his feet, it's written oriented so that he can read it. Oh, it's yeah. Not facing outward. It's facing for him. And I'll remind our listeners here about the Book of the Dead spell 25, which is a spell to that, so that the dead will remember their name. Right. And so I love to point this out to people and be like, look, they wrote it so that he can read his name. Right. So that after all that trauma of being reborn into the afterlife, he just has a sort of peek down in his feet. like, all right, that's right. My name is Heraclides, which we know the name was incredibly important. Right. As one of the aspects of your identity within ancient Egyptian religion. Right. Sometimes I wake up from a dream and I can't I wake up from a dream and I can't remember my name sometimes. So this is. This is important, right? And this is what you would see on a 19th, 20th, or 21st dynasty coffin too, that the orientation is there so the dead can look down and it's, mm-hmm. it's switched in that direction. And it looks upside down to us, but it's not. It's there that way on purpose. Yeah. yeah. I just think it's a great little detail. And again, it's a reminder that this mummy is for Heraclides. Yes, there's mm-hmm. the whole social <laughs> aspect of it. Yes, the elite are using this to the nth degree, but ultimately... It's also a tool for Heraclides to get right. him safely through to the afterlife altogether. Just like I said, there's a lot of discussion and we didn't even touch on some things that we could talk about with Heraclides. Some people suggest, oh, he had the ibis bird wrapped inside the mummy because maybe he was a scribe, right? Mm-hmm. Both is also associated with writing. And or he's a priest of Thoth and thus. Yeah, exactly. And I, the simplistic explanations are perfectly possible, but I just love, let's go all in with this and focus on that Thoth and the egg idea. I just, I really love that idea of just planting Thoth within the mummy and bursting into the afterlife. And to put it at the penile section is perfect because he's going to sexually recreate Oh crap, I just said bursting, didn't I? (laughs) So I created a little click in my brain click and there we went for it. But I also would like to put this in the context of the workshop. Because there are these embalming workshops at this time period, and they're like, we have the Ibis Bird special, and that's where these people went. And of course, those studies looking at the other red shroud mummies, they're doing workshop studies, trying to understand the similarities from one to the other. And I think we're dealing with a similar workshop situation here as well. Yeah, Yeah. totally. But yeah, so this was fun. I love it. Super fun. It's such a, it's an important piece for us here in Southern California. It's also in terms of mummy portraits, a very important piece worldwide it, as a, yeah. as an example of a mummy portrait that has not been ripped from its context. And thus we can say so much more about it, but, and a mummy that's been in, sorry, a mummified body that has been carefully CT scanned. And you can talk about age of death. You can talk about the mummified ibis and all these other things. Have some the, information to work with. The yeah. paint has been analyzed, all these other, there's so much that's been done on this and piece. And if, you get, a, that, if yeah. you get a chance to go to the Getty Villa, also the portrait of Isadora, even though it's no longer attached into the mummy, is one of the finest por- portraits, fame portraits that you will ever see. Yeah. It, it, she's just gorgeous. And it's just a master of the encaustic technique that yeah. executed yeah. that. We didn't even say this is an encaustic portrait, yes? 
I believe to a certain extent, like it's, I would have to look at it again, but for sure with Isidore, because you could just see, right, the wax, right? It was mixed mm-hmm. with the pigment, like sitting right on top of the wood. Heraclides has more of a tempera kind of appearance, oh. but he may have some encaustic sort of in there because there are the the truly encaustic portraits and then there's a middle ground where there's a little bit of both techniques used and then oh, okay. the flat t- tempera portraits. Yeah. So... I'd have to look at it again to see what, because I can't Somewhere. I can remember off the top of my head. But it's certainly one of the finer, you know, examples. Yeah. But I encourage people to go to ancientnow.substack.com, read the post that we have on this. You can see the images. We'll put links to all of the images of Heraclides' mummy, Isadora. That's, you can see and look at these things, either during the discussion or afterwards. But definitely don't miss out on actually looking at what we were talking about. Otherwise, we do sound kind of crazy. And if you don't want to go to the Substack or you don't even know what the hell that is, though, all you have to do is put in Substack and Heraclides and find it. But if you didn't, you can just Google Heraclides mummy and you'll find um, all the images that you need. It's an easy thing to find. You could do that. But go to the <laughs> and subscribe, people. You, you want this content on the ancient world. We've got lots of interesting stuff. Kara is always talking about anti-patriarchal themes and bringing in the the what do you call it the late capitalist decline (laughs) and please subscribe to the podcast subscribe to the Substack. we appreciate the the support we're doing our best to be communicators right about about this history because there are certainly people who don't want us to get into history anymore and that's a big mistake so yes it is There are people out there who want the history to be written in very specific ways and not to be written in such a Marxist (laughs) way. Subscribe, put all the checks and hearts and rate us and all of those things. So thanks for listening, everyone. This is a really fun podcast. Thanks, Amber, for doing it with me. Yeah, thank you for going along on this crazy ride. All right, guys, see you next time. Take care. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms, so subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives. Do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.